3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. Good morning, Shahrazad. Good morning, Priya. It's the 26th of November. Good, good morning. morning. I was very in sync. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're just in sync. I know. We're, you know, the, the show came together uh, so smoothly this week because we're all so coordinated. <laughs> love that for us. Um, how's everybody doing today? Oh, um, we have got quite a heavy show this week. So, um, yeah, that's just a bit of a content warning, actually, for this week for listeners. Yeah, actually. Um, so just before we jump into the rundown, we just want to let people know that we're going to be covering some pretty heavy topics this week. We're going to be talking about uh, Australian war crimes. Uh, we're going to be talking about... Um, child protection and uh, disability from a First Nations perspective uh, with somebody from the First People Disability Network. So uh, just to keep in mind that if you are feeling distressed, um, you can always tune out, but um, ring Lifeline and Beyond Blue. I always forget to have the numbers up in front of me, but I'm going to find them now. Um, but yeah, just make sure that you take care of yourself. You know, if you need to call Lifeline, call 131114. And if you need to access Beyond Blue, uh, call 1300-224636. Yeah. Um, and we will, you know, provide content warnings before each of the interviews that might be distressing as well. Yeah. So shall we jump into the rundown? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so first up, we'll hear some audio uh, from a talk last week on Western Sahara and the refugee camps and the added precarity of COVID-19 pandemic and the restrictions surrounding that. Um, and so that's in two parts. So firstly, we'll hear from Tekbe Ahmed Salah, who is the head of the African Union Department and Ministry of Public Health in the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. And then we'll hear from Oxfam, Oxfam in Algeria country director Hassam, let me just get his last name, Minkara. And after that, we... We'll, oh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll do that one. <laughs> so after that, um, we're going to hear from Babak Said, who is joining us all the way from the other side of the world to speak about their piece in Manjin Quarterly, uh, where they covered... Um, I guess quite a quite an in-depth and sort of intense discussion of Australian war crimes in Afghanistan and the way that you know the military has been centered over the lives of Afghans and you know we're going to unpack that a little bit so it's going to be you know a bit intense but we do encourage people to listen to this if if you do have capacity to do so 
Yeah, and then we're going to hear from Candy Bowers. And Candy is a radical mischief maker and award-winning cross-disciplinary artist born of South African political refugees. And she has a long list of original works to her name, including Inner Thigh, The Sister She Story, The Naked MC, Hyperfragility, Why Are White Men So Defensive, Lol, MC Platypus and Queen Koala's Hip Hop Jamboree, Who's That Chick? Australian Booty and some of her most recent works are One the Bear and Hot Brown Honey Burlesque, which I'm sure some listeners um, have watched. And uh, she joins us today to talk about her new podcast, Multi-Hyphenated. Um, so, yeah, can't wait to hear what Candy's new project's about. And then lastly... Um, we are going to be speaking with June Reamer, who is the Deputy CEO of First People's Disability Network, who's going to join us to discuss the Disability Royal Commission from a First Nations perspective, focusing on the intersection between disability and child removal. And for those of you who don't know, hearings are currently going on in Minjin or Brisbane um, from yeah the start of this week to the end of the week, which is focusing on uh, the intersections between disability and child removal for First Nations uh, people with disability and their families. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And now we're going to go into the news headlines with Kate Kelly. Good morning, Kate. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Um, good. So on, so sorry, guys. I was just getting on my notes. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> was actually really ready to give you the headlines. Um, all right, but now I am. So first up this morning, we have Mining Magnet Fortescue Metals Group, which has admitted it withheld almost two million in royalties to traditional owners in Western Australia's iron ore-rich Pilbara region. The Chief Executive Officer of Fortescue's Metals Group, Elizabeth Gaines, has told the inquiry into the destruction of the sacred caves at Drunken Gorge that it was working with traditional owners to facilitate the $1.9 million in payments as quickly as possible. So, but in a grinning, grilling by Labor Senator Patrick Dogson, the mining giant defended its actions, saying the native title holders not abided by the previously agreed land use agreements. And because of this, the mining company argued that the only avenue it had left was to withhold the compensation while they worked through, the, through it. The parliamentary inquiry is examining the events leading up to the mining company Rio Tinto destroying these 46,000-year-old sacred sites with heritage protection laws in WA now under review and intense scrutiny. And just in this morning, Iranian state media outlets are reporting that the Australian academic Kylie Moore Gilbert has been released from prison. So Ms. Moore Gilbert, um, who is a British-Australian academic, has been detained in Iran for more than two years and has reportedly been released in exchange for three Iranians held aboard. Ms. Moore Gilbert was a Melbourne University lecturer on Middle Eastern studies when she went to Tehran's even prison in September 2018 and was sentenced to 10 years on espionage charges. 
international pressure on, pressure on Iran to secure her release has escalated in recent months, following reports that her health was deteriorating due to long stretches of solitary confinement and that she had been transferred to the notorious Qurashak prison, which is east of Tehran. And on Wednesday, the Victorian government introduced legislation to outlaw conversion therapy, seeking to change someone's sexuality or gender identity with fines of close to $10,000 or up to 10 years in jail. The Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill was introduced to Parliament yesterday and is designed to empower the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission to investigate reports of conversion practices. The report quotes survivors of conversion practices who spoke about the lasting impact it had on their lives and mental health. Health, right? Much of the public religious conversion practice does not actually claim to be able to change a person's sexuality, but instead um, there's a more subtle thing where it encourages people not to act on their desires and to live a celibate life. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. Thank you, Kate. Um, can I add another headline, actually? Mm-hmm. The headline for me. Um, so for people that have not been following the Narrabri uh, gas decision, um, Environmental Minister Susan, is it Susan Lay? Yeah. I, I'm just going to say Susan Lay um, has given approval to the controversial $3.6 billion Narrabri gas project, which is on Gamilaroi country. Um, and, you know, in the in the face of staunch resistance from um, Gamilaroi people, um, it's been an absolutely appalling decision. Um, you know, we're still kind of figuring out what comes next. And, yeah, I think I really encourage people to keep an eye on that, um, you know, take direction from what uh, Gamilaroi elders are asking people to do. Um, and, yeah, this is, you know, just another appalling example of, you know, the colony um, failing to listen to Indigenous people um, while sort of doing the procedural checkbox, uh, sorry, procedural checkbox exercise of environmental impact assessments, which really just tell them what they want to hear. So, um, you know, stay tuned and um, support the fight in whatever way you can. Mm, absolutely. And listeners, um, we're not going to actually be here next Thursday, which is the 2nd of December, um, because that is 3CR's Disability Day. So we absolutely hope that listeners keep tuning in um, because all day there's going to be just such incredible talks and such like necessary talks that aren't ever talked about in mainstream media. So um, really tune into that. But I just wanted to mention that on the 1st of December, um, that is the, Mark's West Papua's original Independence Day when the Morning Star flag was first raised in 1961. Um, and so as my... I think most listeners will know that, yeah, the Morning Star flag is recognised as the national flag of West Papua and it continues to be the defining symbol for the free West Papua movement. And it is illegal to raise that flag in West Papua and people who do uh, raise it, they face arrest, torture and really long jail sentences. So please raise the Morning Star flag on the 1st of December in solidarity with West Papuans and also there's going to be some events, I'm sure, in... um, as well.
get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. And last week we heard about the escalating tensions in Western Sahara, uh, disputed territory south of Morocco and north of Mauritania. So conflict erupted uh, when in the 70s when the Spanish so-called handed over the territory to Morocco and Mauritania to a deal to acquire access to the natural resources there. And fleeing the, con- uh, the conflict, Sahrawi people of the Sahara, Sahrawi, uh, settled in Algeria in a city near a city called Tindouf. So now numbering more than 170,000 people, it's been 45 years since the refugee camps have been erected, embodying UNHCR's second oldest refugee caseload. And so the COVID pandemic has brought added difficulties to the majority of the Sahrawi population who are dependent on humanitarian aid to sustain basic needs such as access to food, water and shelter. The camps are situated in a particularly hostile environment, so it's in the Sahara Desert, Um, and as a result people suffer from persistent levels of food insecurity and malnutrition. And last week, Tikbar Ahmed Salah, who is the head of the African Union Department and the Ministry of Public Health in the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, spoke to the Australian Western Sahara Association about the precarity and the effects of COVID-19. So we'll just listen to that audio now. Okay, uh, good evening. Thank you very much for having me tonight uh, on this webinar. Uh, I'm very glad to provide you for for best of my knowledge about the situation in the refugee camps, uh, especially about COVID and now also now time, which is, has been challenging. Uh, as you might know, the refugee camps already by itself it's a challenge. It's a big challenge for the health situation and for the for the struggle for over 14 years. And now with the COVID-19, uh, we have faced different challenge or rather challenging challenge. <laughs> uh, we have been very uh, trying to prevent the refugee camp from COVID-19 with our best method and knowledge. Um, basically providing people with, the, with awareness, with trying to prevent the disease from coming to the camps. We succeeded to some extent until it started getting closer to us when it reached Tindouf, which is, as you might know, the city closer to refugee camps. We, we knew that it has, to, you know, it has to come to the camps because Tindouf is very close and people are usually coming and going out of, of Tindouf. Uh, the numbers of cases, officially, officially, we have uh, 28 cases uh, confirmed by PCR, uh, out of those 28, two has died and 26 has recovered. But the situation is very challenging, I was saying, because uh, with COVID, everything depends on testing and confirming the cases. And for us, we have those 28 confirmed cases is because the analysis was done in Algeria with the help with Algerians, uh, hospitals and labs. 
not in the refugee camps. Therefore, uh, our situation, uh, the numbers are not, uh, I can say that the numbers are not the right numbers and not the right, you know, uh, what's happening in the camps to uh, illustrate what's really happening in the camps. But that's what we have as official because according to the, uh, the World Health Organization, only cases has been reported, confirmed cases has to be reported by PCR analysis, a diagnosis, diagnostic. And for us, we don't have PCR. And since the beginning of the pandemic, we have reached out to all NGOs who are working in the camps. We have reached out to African Union. We have reached out to uh, ACNOR, uh, UNCR. We have reached out to Spanish NGOs to provide us with PCR so we can be doing analysis. But until now, nobody has responded with that request. So in the camps, there is no PCR machine. So there is no diagnosis by PCR. So we don't, we, the case that I can say that they are confirmed only the, those 20, uh, 28 cases. Other than that, we have been using a rapid test, which is antibiotics uh, method to diagnose the COVID. And for those, we have done almost almost uh, uh, 900 uh, rapid test cases. Out of those, the latest uh, the latest results show that we have. 20, uh, 272 cases, confirmed cases uh, uh, with the rapid test. But we can't, acknowledge, we can't acknowledge those rapid tests as, you know, as real diagnostic because, you know, based on the international uh, regulations or World Health Organization, they, they insist that has to be uh, confirmed with the PCR uh, diagnosis. And for that, we are uh, very... Uh, it was really difficult for us to illustrate what's really happening in the refugee camps in terms of cases, in terms of how many people getting infected and how to uh, strategically and uh, successfully manage the COVID-19 uh, you know, crisis. Uh, that's for now. And as, yeah, as you ask more, I can, I can provide. <laughs> that sounds very dire, Tekba. Um... Are you not expecting any further responses from those you've reached out to? Uh, to my knowledge, until now we don't have anything, so I can't say right. I can't say anything about it. But right, right. And uh, and what about what what measures are being taken in the camps? Um, is is you know, what we would call lockdown here? Uh, are people responding well to? Yeah, and the, as I told you. Uh, it's very known for the Sahrawis that we one of the measures that I always take with disease is to prevention. So our health system actually is built for strong uh, prevention um, prevention programs. So as the beginning of the pandemic, we start gathering all the information as it comes out about the disease, trying to uh, many trying to make campaign awareness campaign a lockdown. We did a lockdown in early March. Um, and as a matter of fact, the first case was reported in the refugee camp is July 26. So we actually managed. And the first case was uh, when the first case was reported from Tinduf, May 3rd, we knew that it will come late, sooner than later in, in the refugee camps because there are a lot of movement between the Tinduf and the refugee camps. But we managed to lock down the the camps from and that was very actually useful because you know we are in Algeria the Algeria was under lockdown also us as in the, uh, in the lockdown so they were like stripped of movement so they were like no we managed to hold on you know 
to keep the virus out at least for a few months later than you know than the beginning of the breakdown in the war. So, as I actually was saying in my talk earlier in Australia during the tour and all these years, we've been having struggling uh, of the reduction of the food ration by the World Health World Food Program. So the refugee camps they have been getting reduction in the in the ration of the food, and then this pandemic will make it very hard also for the people to uh, to maintain the food and the water, especially, you know, with this COVID-19, you have to wash your hand, you have to be keeping cleaning. And um, the food was really a big problem with the, in the, but we managed, you know, the, also I think the structure of the society helped us during this pandemic. It's because society is, uh, is structured for solidarity and taking care of each other and we have to share and everybody was like in this, uh, we managed to make very good campaigns, uh, including children, drawings, and everybody was participating in, the, in this fight. And then I think that's what makes it successful to hold, you know, to make it not enter the camps at least for a few months. But after it gets to the camps, that's when the challenge comes, especially from the, the term how to diagnose it and how to manage it. I think one of the main issues right now in the camps, it will be actually rise after this pandemic, is the anemia and malnutrition and uh, the increase of uh, non-communicable disease that a lot of people got infected with COVID is because of this. Uh, it shows that a lot of people were infected because they have very uh, weak immune system. And the, the Minister of Health is trying to so hard to maintain those uh, numbers not to going to rise in the near future, but we don't know with the food situation and with the water situation, it's really hard for us to, and especially with now, uh, with these circumstances of what we are living right now, it's gonna be very hard uh, for, 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 for the whole refugee camps. You talked about the, the water um, with, you know, so, so little clean water. Um, what can be done about that? Uh, we have been advocating for so long uh, with the water ministry of water uh, that the water is really essential for health and especially there are so many studies has been done showing that the higher uh, iodine in the water and other minerals are uh, increasingly of, uh, causing a lot of chronic disease like uh, gluten like uh, cancer in the in the in the neck and also a lot of malnutrition, uh, a lot of problem in with, with development for children and for women. And we have been advocating for a, lo uh, for a long time with the uh, UNCR to provide clean water. So for now, only like two camps are benefiting from clean water, partially clean water, not all. And the rest of the camps are dealing with this very high concentrated in irons and iodine and nitrates and all this. And it's, I think uh, in the wrong run, it will show in the population a lot. Of, it will manifest a lot of problems, a lot of health problems, a uh, lot of cancers, and a lot of also uh, growth and development problems in the, in the population. Yeah. And can I ask about mental health? That's another part we have been focusing on uh, right now with the, during the pandemic. Uh, mainly, it's just to have um, programs on radio and TV 
to talk about mental health and to uh, strengthen, uh, to talk to people that, you know, this is just a hard time, we will pass it. But in my point of view, it's because we have lived for a long time with this struggle, we kind of uh, build some, some kind of resistance to hard, hardship because all of our life has been hardship, you know, facing the refugee, uh, refugee life, facing the, the desert, facing all this lack of food and water and, and medicine uh, also, you know, it's just, I think, mental, like emotionally and mentally, we think we are ready for it, but I don't know what will happen in the long, long run with the, our mental health. We are addressing that aspect of, of, of health. Uh, we are addressing it with, web, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with campaigns and with the, with, the, with the programs in radio and TV, yes. And that was Tekber Ahmed Salah, who is the head of the African Union Department and the Ministry of Public Health in the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, uh, based in the Tindouf refugee camp. And she spoke with the Western Sahara, Australian Western Sahara Association last week about the precarity and the effects of COVID-19. Um, so next up, we'll head into a song. Um, and this song's by Aziza Ibrahim, who was born in 1976 in the Sahrawi refugee camps uh, in the Tindouf region. Um, and uh, the song we'll be listening to is called Baraka, which is a, um, in Islam, is a blessing power and a kind of continuous continuity oh my god i can't even say anything any anymore of spiritual presence and the revelation that begins with allah and flows through to those closest to allah
And that was Aziz Ibrahim with the song Baraka. Um, and so we just heard audio from Tekba um, Ahmed Salah, who spoke with the Australian Western Sahara Association. Um, and now we'll hear from Oxfam in Algeria country director Hassam Minkara. Uh, good evening for all first. Uh, and thank you, Lynn, uh, Takber, Kamal and uh, Eileen for, for hosting us today. Uh, the situation in the camp is, is very challenging, as Takbar has, has, has mentioned, because of many reasons, starting with a very limited uh, health sector capacity, uh, the lack of equipment, the lack of testing. So the, the, the approach that Oxfam does globally, and that's its specialty, is the preventative health. So we don't do... Uh, we don't do any hospitalization or any real medical help, but we do preventative health. Uh, so in, in, in this context, we have started uh, our response from April uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. And we have tackled three main uh, groups. So the top priority was the health workers. Uh, in a place where we want to encourage people to be uh, consulting the medical clinics in order to to be able to provide the basic the basic protection for the small number of health professionals being doctors or being nurses or being technicians in the health clinics it was key to provide that that protection and hence we provided hygiene items uh, meaning uh, disinfectants, soap, uh, in order to be used in the health clinics. So this is one element. Then personal protection equipment. So we're talking about masks, we're talking about gowns. Uh, the items that the health uh, staff would use. And then we, so, so that was one, one key group of people. And then we went into the uh, public and when we did that, we really focused on enabling hand washing. Um, the lack of public facilities where people are able to wash their hands when they are out uh, working in, in, in the market or in the public space in general is really rare. I mean, the, the scarcity of water, uh, what, what Tekber has mentioned, I mean, maybe it is worth mentioning some figures. The quantity of water given per person in the camp varies between 8 liter to 12 liter per day. And that's almost half of the minimum standard set by the uh, sphere standards, which is an agreed um, which is an agreed parameter used by all humanitarian actors globally. So while the minimum recommended is 20 liters per person per day, in the Sahrawi camps, refugees are receiving almost half of this, not to talk about the issues related to quality and regularity. So what we have done is we installed uh, public uh, hand-washing stations in order to enable people to, to wash their hands in, in public uh, so, so we can reduce the contact of uh, the contact with the virus uh, 
uh, and with contaminated uh, items. Uh, then the, the last element was more targeting the wider public. So we started with the health sector as a top priority. Then we moved to the people who are out in the, out in the space, uh, out in the public space and could be exposed to the virus by having the hand washing station um, installed. The last element was addressing the wider community by supporting the health authorities to do public health promotion in, in, in terms of printing and disseminating uh, awareness uh, material. Uh, another key aspect which emerged in the beginning of the crisis and might be emerging now again is the drastic economic impact of the crisis on the people. So we're talking about really two big changes that happened in the camp. One is the um, sort of blockage of the very basic economic activities that the Sahrawi refugees would have. And that meant that the irregular income or extra income which could be coming to the people who heavily rely on a humanitarian aid has gone. So Tegbar talked about the already very limited uh, health, uh, like food ration provided by, by the international actors. So we have stepped in and uh, increased the food distribution topping up whatever exists with fresh food. So this distribution of fresh food has been done between uh, May and, uh, and October uh, in order to enable the families or contribute to the, to the family's capacity to consume fresh uh, products. Um, I think one of the other key elements which have changed is the informal flow of uh, support, which normally comes to the camps through uh, solidarity groups and through visitors who come uh, to the camp. And those haven't been able to visit Algeria because officially until the moment, the only way to access the camp is to travel to, to, to Algeria, to Algiers or to Tindouf and then go to the, to the camps. And that has not been possible because officially the Algerian borders are still closed since March. So no international travel. Uh, the other element where normally at least 5,000 young uh, Sahrawis, mainly kids, uh, boys and girls, who, who get the chance to go to, to Europe uh, and participate in, in, a, in a program facilitated by solidarity groups in, in, in Europe where these kids are hosted. They are sort of informally adopted, supported financially, supported with their, with their health check, with some clothes, with some um, entertainment, like things which, which could be really recreational for kids during the peak summer. This hasn't happened as well. So, so really big, big missing, missed opportunities, which are normally uh, happening through the incoming flow of travelers or the outgoing flow of travelers. And this has completely stopped. So, so the economic situation is, is, very, is very challenging as well. 
Uh, now what we are uh, doing more is uh, continuing to, to, to provide and uh, look for um, personal protect, protective equipments because that remains a key, a key gap and the high cost of consumable. Uh, and we are now studying the possibilities of uh, doing more uh, hygiene items for the public, which comes at a very high cost at the moment. Indeed. <clears throat> so um, what do we know about other organisational support? Are there, uh, you talk about Oxfam, but um, is, is there any ramping up of assistance coming from uh, other countries or are we also consumed by um, this virus that, uh, that people are not thinking outside their own situation? Yes, this is a very good question, and it it's not only limited to the uh, to the COVID environment, but it also goes beyond that. Um, the Sahrawi crisis has been categorized by some donors in in sense of highlighting the importance as a forgotten crisis, like the um, echo of the of the European. Uh, union has categorized the crisis as a forgotten crisis. Donors do not have sufficient attention. There is no interest in uh, continuing the support of the second longest refugee crisis in the world. We're talking about 45 years of refugee camps installed in the desert of the deserts in one of the most hostile environments in the world temperatures as low as zero and as high as 50 in summer. So really difficult circumstances. But despite all of this, there is very limited funding coming to, to, to the camp in general. Uh, there has been some generous support from few donors and few supporters around the world, but that's re- still limited. It's far away from meeting uh, the needs Every year, the United Nations Humanitarian uh, Response Plan is barely 50% funded. So the gap is always big. The gap is always unmet. There are a lot of unmet needs. Uh, Other NGOs are uh, active, but broadly speaking, the number of NGOs active in the camp compared to other crises globally is very limited. The number of donors providing support is also very limited. The amount of money provided by, by donors now in the pandemic has also been uh, limited generally. Uh, we had support from the uh, Swedish cooperation, which was uh, very helpful. We had support from uh, some uh, philanthropists or small small solidarity groups in, in different places in the world, but that has also been very, very small. I think, globally speaking, all governments are very much consumed and concerned about their own uh, response to the pandemic. Uh, the financial capacities with the economic global crisis associated with COVID has also caused more... A negative impact and less uh, support to channel to the camps. 
So it's it's very crucial to really encourage people who are able to donate to think about those young boys and girls, the elders, the women, the people with chronic diseases who are living in the middle of the desert without proper housing, without proper health uh, facilities in order to be able to, to promote the prevention as much as possible. Thank you for that. Um, uh, this question probably doesn't, uh, can't be answered, but... Uh, the... So th- that was, um, what's his name? Okay, Hassam Minkara, who uh, is the Oxfam in-country director in Algeria. Um, and next up, we'll hear from uh Babak Saeed. Um, but first up, we'll just listen to a community announcement. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 9419 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. And um, we are about to have a conversation with Babak Said. So before we jump into that, I just wanted to start off with a content warning because we're going to be discussing a bit of the context around the, uh, the Australian Defence Force or ADF's military brutality in Afghanistan and um, yeah, before we go into that, just saying again, a reminder that if you need to contact Lifeline at any point, uh, their number is 131114 and Beyond Blue is 1300 224636. Um, so yeah, we're about to go into a conversation with Babak Said, who is a fiction writer, essayist, editor and multidisciplinary artist. Their research interests include the war on terror, fugitivity, and queer and trans studies. And they recently published an essay in Manjin Online called New Generation of Australian War Criminals. Babak, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Priya. Thanks for having me. Um, so maybe before we start, um, would you like to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a bit about the article? Yeah, sure. Um yeah, my name is Bobak. Um, I'm a graduate student, uh, editor. I think your introduction was, um, was, was great. I guess the article, um, more importantly, was an effort for me to um, 
like push back against what I had been noticing in the coverage so far, um, and which, which I've noticed um, a great deal in previous coverage around Australian war crimes, Australian malpractice abroad, um, you know, the military misconduct. It's not the first time, of course. And so um, I really had noticed in these articles uh, from The Guardian and The Age, as well as um, other coverage, that veterans and their families were being centered um, as the almost like the victims of the emotional impact of this um, of the report, you know, and it was a very damning four year long investigation that found um, widespread um, practices of cruelty, cover ups, bloodthirsty um, murder of innocent Afghans, um, which which didn't take place in the context of active combat, which which were kind of you know, daily practices of initiation of junior soldiers, um, of just slaughter of farmers, of children, of prisoners who'd never been charged of any crimes. Um, and so it kind of really outraged me to see that the, the coverage was treating this as some kind of, you know, um, objective, um, you know, like almost like a, an, an environmental disaster, you know, like, oh, this thing happened over here and um, we need to, you know, express our deepest sympathies and condolences to the Australian Defence Force as though they weren't the active perpetrators of that violence, you know, and, and even the numbers that are circulating, which I've been resistant to um, re reproduce because I, I feel it is deeply inaccurate. It's a huge understatement. Um, and I wonder about how many whistleblowers, how many uh, soldiers were intimidated out of coming forward with the allegations, how many were successfully covered up. Because one of the things to note about the report is that it absolves senior command of any responsibility. So senior command, if we had to go by the logic of the report, had no idea this was going on and was so widespread across so many years in the Australian Defence Forces you know, um, behavior abroad, which I find very hard to believe. Um, and so that's part of what the um, report was attempting to, or what my essay was attempting to um, push back on, is that like, how is this the community that is being centered? Are these the victims? Meanwhile, you know, in my Afghan Australian communities, the uh, toll on this is severe, especially witnessing how few mental health resources there are and how um, reluctant Australia is to kind of um, really like think about um, and empathize with um, with Afghans and with the victims of these war crimes uh, and, and instead actually like doing the quite quite the opposite you know empathizing with the the criminals themselves yeah and I mean I think you know even at the at the top of the show when I was talking about lifeline and beyond blue I was thinking through that and being like you know are these even the most appropriate um, support services to support the Afghan diaspora in Australia, um, who are not only reeling from the sort of horrific and, you know, abject violence of what's been revealed in the Brereton Report, but then, as, as you've mentioned, the importance of your article coming out, responding to the reporting that's circulated around this, which sort of reinscribes those kinds of logics of, you know, 
of completely you know, vacating Afghan people of all agency and subjectivity in those discussions and mm. instead centering it on, you know, on ADF members. And I think the sort of the attempts to kind of valorize um, ADF members uh, for, you know, speaking up about this, you know, I think it is really important that whistleblowers came forward, but then this kind of cognitive dissonance around um you know, higher command as well is incredibly concerning. And um, I was wondering if I could pick up on something um, that you sort of touched on in the article, but has also been circulating in, in some more critical public discussion on the issue, which is to, to think about the sort of framing of war crimes in the first place um, and what it means to kind of evoke that language when we're talking about a context of, you know, empire and interventionism um, that obviously has a much more complex, you know, history, especially when we're talking about people that are, um, you know, definitely even non-combatants, um, but when the notion of combat is already so fraught. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Bria. I think and it makes me think of the original intention, the one that received support from the Australian public in 2002 um, and Parliament, which was to send Australian troops um, to Afghanistan to train the Afghan military to defend themselves and to kind of rebuild uh, or kind of strengthen their existing infrastructure around defense and security. That was the, that's what the Australian people were told in 2002. So to think that 18 years later, not only are there still active troops in Afghanistan, but they're causing so much damage and that in fact the situation has um, intensified, that there is m more instability, that the Taliban uh, have a stronger hold on, um, you know, rural areas that they had been um, kind of pushed out of, at least in the immediate aftermath or the years following, you know, um, the invasion. And so I'm thinking about how, you know, so much of that original phrasing kind of... Um, really misrepresented the reality of this intervention and how, you know, historically Afghanistan's position on the Silk Road in Central Asia has, as a, as a proxy for the Cold War, has always been framed as a strategic um, kind of base for the United States in preventing the spread of socialism um, and in a kind of like, you know, um, in a neighboring Iran in a neighboring Iraq, you know, in a, and, and so it's kind of part of what I feel like the article was also trying to identify how, you know, Australia really likes to conceive of itself as somehow more or less morally bankrupt than the United States and the, and Great Britain. When in fact, when you look at the history, even though we have piggyback, piggybacked, on larger empires to kind of make the critical decisions, our soldiers were still there. And, and this report really lays out how, in fact, our soldiers were even more brutal than the US and British ones. Although, you know, it's unclear exactly the extent of all of this, again, I must say. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's been a sort of consistent thread in some of the discussions that we've been having over the last few weeks um, on Thursday Breakfast, where um, on the one hand, we've been thinking about uh, Australia's involvement um, in other countries uh, like, you know, in, in West Papua and um, their involvement in, in training up uh, Indonesian uh, 
police forces to uh, suppress West Papuan resistance, but then also thinking about the sort of Cold War, hot war um, issues around, uh, you know, interventionism in um, across Morocco and Western Sahara. Um, and, you know, these these issues really kind of resonate um, in terms of the logics of intervention that are at play. Um, and I guess I wanted to turn to what some of the backlash has been around this and how it kind of is, in in my view, has been a bit indicative of the sort of structural issues um, around race and around empire that we have been discussing. You know, how does the how's the backlash itself in the media um, kind of evoke some of those same concerns? Priya, it's been absolutely insane. The last 48 hours have just have seen an absolute torrent of abuse, um, death threats, uh, like vivid gay torture fantasies, um, kind of like across all of my uh, social media platforms, um, my website. It's really um, quite stunning how uh, thorough it's been. And directly, I would say, at the command of uh, Murdoch Press, because the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph published various um, kind of attack articles with careful language on an issue and shaped the narrative and distorted it, pulling my quotes out of context, such that the narrative now, at least according to these kind of this media empire, has become this... um, radical left artist, dissident, unpatriotic, un-Australian, you know, um, self-hating, unappreciative, like the ungrateful refugee is something that's like come up a lot. And I think that it's really, um, you know, especially for my critical eye, it's been really illuminating in in the kind of expectations that large swathes of Australia have of, of their immigrant communities because I'm expected to uh, keep my head down and toe some line and be appreciative of a, of a country. And, and I think that this is very much true of how um, of, of, of Afghans all across the country who are, who are feeling outraged, but are maybe afraid of speaking up and holding power accountable because this is exactly what happens when one person from that community does try to. Yeah. I mean, I think it is just, it's just been absolutely appalling um, what you've been subject to. And I think I think it's really important for people who are consuming media about this to have a, a very critical eye in, in what they're reading and, you know, to make sure that they're actually accessing your writing from the source. Because I felt when I read your essay as well, it was, you know, it was it was very carefully worded. It was sort of, you know, almost anticipating the kind of backlash that would come. But of course, you know, this, the, the language that's being used and the kind of threats that you've been subject to have been absolutely horrifying. And I just, you know, want to say that we absolutely don't condone that kind of behavior. Um, look, we're coming up to time, but um, is there anything else that you wanted to leave our listeners with or, you know, let them know where they can read your writing as well um, before we wrap? Um, you know, uh, I've got a website, but I guess that the, the, the thing that I, that I want to leave on is that I think it's high time for like a, a reckoning with the kind of culture of irreverence around the military, around the ADF, around kind of like valorizing um, soldiers and valorizing police. And I think that there's a real through line between 
um, you know, all of these armed services, you know, from the military to border patrol to, you know, police officers, you know, we, we, we have a good understanding of the kind of blood that's on Victoria Police's hands. Um, and, and these are all kind of in pursuit of the same objectives, you know, from the Navy who, uh, and Coast Guard who kind of maintains the population of Manus and, and polices that border on the north of the country all across um, the rest of, you know, borders. And so I guess I'm just like, I really, if, if anything, this is, has like indicated how significant and crucial it is that this like moment is, is an opportunity for um, kind of like self-analysis um, and self-improvement across people who've like traditionally just taken um, that kind of valor uh, to be self-evident. And I hope that this kind of can become that opportunity for them. Thank you so, so much. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on on such short notice um, for, for speaking about this incredibly difficult and traumatizing issue. And I'm sure it has been traumatizing. And um, we would love to have you back on again to have more of these critical conversations, because I think everything you've raised is so important. Oh, thank you, Priya. It's been a joy being on here. So here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Um, and just before, uh, we ha- uh, Priya had a conversation with Babak Sayed, uh, who is a fiction writer, essayist, editor, and multidisciplinary artist, and their research. Uh, interests include the war on terror, f- fugility, and queer and trans studies. Candy Bowers is a radical mischief maker and award-winning cross-disciplinary artist born of South African political refugees. She has a long list of original works to her name, including Inner Thigh, The Sister, She Story, The Naked MC, Hyperfragility, Why White Men So Defensive Lol, MC Platypus and Queen Koala's Hip Hop Jamboree, Who's That Chick, Australian Booty, and most recently, Won the Bear and Hot Brown Honey Burlesque. And today, she joins us on 3CR to speak about her new podcast, Multi Hypho. Welcome, Candy. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hello, hello. <laughs> so, tell us all about Multi Hypho. What's the story behind creating this podcast? Yeah, look, it's, a, it's sort of multiple things coming together at once. I was in LA last year for a mentorship program uh, to get right in there and learn how to show run on a comedy series. And I took some podcast workshops at Film Independent, which is the sort of independent community around all things film and radio, and met amazing people. I actually went to a, a podcast workshop um, with some Latinx women who... Uh, just talked us through the whole thing and I realise now that it's become like they're, you know, such a solid foundation. But what I was when I was over there, I was looking around and seeing how many um 
mixed race people there were inside of the scene and and that there wasn't that much around media offerings around when you really do cut across the intersection in multiple ways. And also when over there, it's quite an international scene. But what they ask, which I think is really different to being in Australia, particularly of writers or people creating new platforms in any way, is why do you want to make this? In fact, why are you the only person who could make it? Even with writers, why do you want to write this film? In fact, why are you the only person that could write this film? And who you are and how you've grown up and where you come from is vital to making something. So I looked at myself and, of course, I'm like, well, I'm, you know, from gender to sexuality, of course, ethnicity, cultural background, and also as a cross-disciplinary artist, I feel like... I, you know, even trying to fill out a Screen Australia form, I'm like, can I make some new boxes? Because I can't tick any of these boxes. And I'm insulted by what you've asked me half the time. And <laughs> which, which particular, um, you know, countries of origin or ethnicities can I put down? What are the top three? Because there's no room to put all of them, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm like, I wanted to make something for people who, you know, have to tick all of the boxes or have to make make their own on those sorts of forms, but also to get into the nuance of what that feels like and, and how that impacts on our art and our love lives and our um, family connections and the coding that goes on. Because when you are, you know, multiracial um, and can exist across different things, sometimes, you know, you call on certain parts of you and you have to ask yourself why. Can you be your complete self in any one space? Mm. is a big question. Mm. Um, the sort of notion that um, it's it's confusing is interesting. Um, I'm one of those people who I don't like the term non um, or in between because I feel like I'm all of these things rather than only part of some. Mm, yeah, divided. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so it became a space to do that. And then in, in the space also, and anyone who's, multiply like a multiple creative outlets are called multi hyphenates. Mm-hmm. So I sort of started playing with this idea of multi hyphos and um, came up with the podcast and then Art Centre Melbourne asked me what I was up to because of the pandemic. Mm. And this was my big migration to digital and it has been <laughs> such a huge learning curve because like a lot of stage artists I hadn't, you know, plugged the mic into a laptop in my life. Mm. Um, and been amazing working with my engineer Christian Biko. Mm-hmm. He's one of those like secret golden people. Um, but also politically, it's such a cool mix because Christian's um, uncle is Steve Biko. And as I came to Australia, um, my parents came as political refugees because my grandfather was the first coloured leader of the Labour Party, so trade unionist from back in the day. And then we have this political history, which also informs everything we do. And um, the conversations we have and who we choose to come on. But in the first place, um, the first, like there's so many people. We want to yeah. Talk to. <laughs> um, so it's always amazing. You think, wow, now I'm like generating this, this piece of art like weekly, which is just, I did not have a clue that it would be like making short, it's like making short form documentary films like mm. that's how it feels like putting together the sound and um attention to detail and and really elevating all of the artists and 
I was in the Melbourne Camel Board to say, let's focus on sort of Victorian multi-hypho. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's been such a pleasure, like, so incredible, like, just going, oh, we're all here. And that's why I made it as well, because I feel like you can often feel so much like an, um, you know, alone mm. when you've been marginalised so much and then you're a part of multiple marginalised identities. Mm. So so just, you know, talking to Lay the Mystic and Laniok and Suze and um, we've got like Joelistics coming up and Sir Peter and Eugene Tay, all these people, it's so bolstering and con- uh, affirming. Yeah, yeah. So, and are you finding that the podcast um kind of layout and format is actually like 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 quite liberating in a way because maybe you have a bit more autonomy than um some other like art works and performances that you've had to like um maybe like comply with (laughs) I guess um what the state wants a bit more yeah, look, I, I've never had to, to play with that too much unless I was a gun for hire, like unless I'm an actor in someone else's show. Mm. So with my original work, I've always been very uncompromising. But this definitely is one of those uncompromising spaces where, um, you know, there's no there's no sense of um, censorship or anything like that. But also I think, in that space, what's really liberating too is being able to say the artist, we can talk about anything. Mm. And and having another platform, I think, realising that, oh, it's not just art, it's, it's a means of promotion. So this week, Samuel Gaskin's on and he has a show at the Melbourne Fringe called The Reckoning, um, which sits across his bloodlines. And um, I can then be another outlet where main you know like artists of color or artists from queer identities can speak as well and i feel like that there's so much power in it um it's really important that they can talk because we do we talk about just very um openly politically about the art scene and i feel like in if you want to because the arts are so small in australia mm. there's not a lot of power powerful kind of promotional avenues for multi-hyphos to actually speak openly about the, um, you know, white supremacy or the sort of colonial buildings that we find mm. ourselves partnering with and on. Yeah. Uh, and, and that experience and how difficult that is because you're always in this pickle of like, oh, I'm going to do my show that breaks all these, breaks all this ground, but inside a building that has, is really problematic. But then 3,000 children are going to be able to see it. And so it's like this constant, like, ah, oh, you know, there's no nirvana yet. So what are we working towards and how can we keep pushing for better circumstances and yeah. better from those institutions? Yeah. So it's a really good source as well, I think, to, to have voice because mm. I feel like um, it's really easy for those institutions to pretend or, like, you know, put their fingers in their ears and be like, la, la, la. Um, we, we do a festival a couple times a year for different people of colour, you know. Uh, that should be enough. And, and now we're really being able to say, well, it isn't. Mm. And if you have um, a vested interest in the future of art and the work being made, you know, out of here, that it's not something that you can 
close your eyes to. And I, I'm finding some of the folks I've spoken to sort of in who are in their 40s uh, and later 40s have lived through so much in the arts. Uh, that That's the other great thing is for younger folks coming up. It's always so important to know the history mm. uh, or else you can get hoodwinked. I almost want to write a story like, don't be that dummy. You know, <laughs> there's so many people that have come before you. you yeah, know, and so you need been... to build on their knowledge, right. their work, their resistance. Yeah, That's right. And, and that have been brutalised and cannibalised by these systems. Guess what? Don't be that dummy that just goes in and goes, me too, awesome. And that's why, you know, everyone should go and listen to Multi-Hi-Fi so that you can actually (laughs) hear (laughs) um, a bit more about, yeah, the history in the arts as well from all of this, yeah, all these incredible people because you do um, definitely, yeah, talk to a lot of people in a lot of different artistic scenes and who have yeah, a lot of different right, works and, fashion, and yeah fashion yeah. Lanny Ook's a poet yeah. lay the mystic yeah. poet also yeah yeah <laughs> performer yeah mm. and I think even just acknowledging like for the, the people that don't know who some of my guests are it's a really beautiful time like they're like somebody said lay the mystic I'm like you didn't know oh my god exciting you know <laughs> Um, although here, Lenny Ook's storytelling, and they're like, okay, I'm hanging for the book. You know, uh, it's really important to me because, you know, most of the people I'm going to be elevated, elevating are um, in those pockets of, like, amazing, amazing artists that not enough people know about because mm. they, don't, they don't play with the mainstream and yeah. they, don't, they don't, like, try and get that gold star. So it's yeah. a really different it's a really different approach and mm. but you know the moment I think people know who they are <laughs> it's gonna be huge because they're all so incredible. Like I went to Fashion Week um show last night to see SZM's new um new collection on the runway, on the laneway runway, and it was so exciting to see their work in there and more diverse work in, in fashion, you know. Um, every single sector needs so much, needs to be pulled inside out. You mm. know? And I'm so but, glad um, that you're having those conversations with people because I just think that, yeah, one, there's not enough podcasts that are, are produced yeah. in so-called Australia. And yeah. two, yeah. actually having these critical conversations via podcast, um, yeah, just needs to happen more. So it's not just like the written critiques or, yeah. um, you know, yeah. just critiques in performances, like actually talking about it, reflecting on the arts mm. industry is so vital. And so yeah. lastly, Candy, can you tell us where listeners can access Multi-HIFO and listen to the podcast? Yes. So Multi-HIFO is on Spotify, iTunes and Google at the moment, Google Podcast. So you can get it, get it on those, any of those places. You can come direct to the Arts Centre website or candybowers.com if you're just like, you know, I want to go to a website first and then just click on an icon rather than searching through podcasts if you're new to podcasting. Um, So on my page, there'll be blog information about all the artists 
And it's just, I'm pretty sure if you just put in multi-hypo podcast, all those things will come up on Google. And, you know, subscribe away, listen in. We're, um, we've just released episode four with Samuel Gaskin. And next week will be episode five with Joel Listics of TZU fame back in the day, original punk um, hip hop. So uh, it's pretty exciting. And we've got, we've awesome, got Candy. shows all the way to the end of the year. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Loved it. (laughs) See you guys. See ya. And just then we heard from Candy Bowles about her new podcast, Multi-Hypho. And next up? Um, But next up, we're going to be speaking with June Reimer, who's the Deputy CEO of First Peoples Disability Network, who joins us to discuss the Disability Royal Commission from a First Nations perspective, focusing on the intersection between disability and child removal. Hi, June. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Priya and Carly. Good morning. Good morning. Um, So, Carly, do you want to kick it off? Well, yeah. First, June, can you tell listeners a bit more about um, the network? the First People's Disability Network? Yes, so I'll introduce myself. I'm a Gumbanja Gungadi woman from the north coast of New South Wales. First People's Disability Network is the only national peak and representative body um, representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability, their carers and families. So we've been around for 20 years now. Um, what we would say that... Um, you know, we are the voice for those most vulnerable and most disadvantaged, and we try to take their issues forward um, around government policy and other agencies to um, ensure that, you know, the voice of those with disability and um, their cultural connections are always part of um, all our business. And this week, the Disability Royal Commission is particularly exploring the structural violence that First Nations people experience in the child protection system around so-called Australia. What are some of the issues that uh, the First People's Disability Network is trying to raise? Yes, so I I think the main concern for us is um, that recognition of, you know, cross-disability what does disability look in our, look like in our communities? And, and understanding, you know, the cultural implications and the geographic implications for many of our families. So, um, you know, our, our main concern is there's no real understanding or data or early intervention to, you know, support our children or support our families to, you know, have the best lives that they can. Yeah. I couldn't agree more because the child protection system, like I think people think that it's about supporting children and supporting families, but actually the reality is that families, especially Aboriginal families um, who are mostly targeted by the system, um, then have to really like comply and um, fit into like a white, like really like a white supremacist kind of um, or like Australian family, nuclear family kind of model. Um, and yeah. so that on top of then having, yeah, families who are disabled um, I, and just not being able to access that support um, is just, yeah, it's so terrible. So, uh, you know, I think the story, you know, has a, a, a long history as we would know. So, you know, the removal of First Nations children 
has been in, happening in, in our Australia for many generations. So we have that intergenerational trauma. So, But also, I think, you know, what isn't understood well in our communities, you know, we had a system where, you know, people were supported in our, uh, our communities and in our families. But when, you know, the colonial overview broke down those systems and removed people from country, removed people from family, you know, that was all broken. So you've got that intergenerational trauma that has happened, you know, across many of our communities. And so, and the fear of agency, the fear of systems, you know, or not understanding, you know, if language is your, you know, if English is your third or fourth language in regards, how would you understand, you know, a system that hasn't been built with, with you in mind or your culture or your language? So, you know, these are the, the discrimination issues that we find, you know, across this land that um, the systems weren't built for our communities or understanding, you know, how our communities work. And when you break down um, those communities, which has happened in the past, you're going to have trauma. You're going to have dysfunctional, you know, things happening. But first and foremost, you know, what's happened with the system, there's no understanding of, you know, disability in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander content. So, yeah. you know, we have education and learning and training across the system and that one size does not fit all, you know, Mm. And it's about health and well-being, mm. how a, you know our family exists. Until we incorporate those sort of systemic changes, you know, we're going to see these large large rates of removal, and you know, fear within our community. And and you know, um, we all know that this you know support, the best place for any child to be, is within a family unit. Absolutely. And, and, you know, so and and whether that's you know. The family have disability self. How can mm. we, do, you know, support a wraparound service that ensures that the individuals, the families, the, the outer layers of those family connections are all being included in a conversation to get the best outcomes of what their needs are? So the colonial system, you know, that of about everyone must have a clean house you know, in regards to getting support services. Mm. It's not first and foremost for a lot of our people. You know, we, we need to understand, you know, how they live culturally in their place of being and work from that backwards. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a lot of learning to be had in regards to what is disability business for our community. Definitely. And I think you've touched on some really important issues there. And there was something that I've sort of seen come up around this week's hearings, which I don't think really gets a lot of coverage or attention. And that is the issue of uh, child removal when it comes to a disabled parent um, and, you know, how um, Indigenous parents who may live with disability are then, you know, subject to these systems of child removal where, um, this is another level of sort of breaking up families. And I was wondering if you could speak to, to some of the concerns around um, parents or caregivers who may have a disability and the, the issues that they face. So I, I think we, we need to go back and understand where Australia sits today in regards to acknowledging, you know, that um, people with a disability have a right of place, a right of education, a right to, you know, access whatever they need for their health and well-being. So, you know, we would say, say in some concerns that 
Australia still sits back in the 50s and 60s in regards to making, you know, accessible, accessible for all, you know, universal um, access for mm. everyone that, you know, needs support. So, uh, you know, it, it comes with a long history. So it was, you know, a collaboration of all the disability teachers in Australia that, you know, got this movement going for a Royal Commission. And that was over 10 years, you know, before we got to this. So, you know, when we go back to, you know, the question, as you said, um, the removal of children from, you know, mothers with disability, it's that ignorance of not understanding, you know, how how that person can be, you know, supported, as I said earlier, that whole-of-person approach. What do they need in their life to... Just because they have a disability doesn't mean that, you know, they're not the best mothers, they're not the best caregivers. So I think we have a lot of education, a long way to go yet in understanding, you know, people with disability, you know, live and breathe and work and, and um, access community at the same rates as everybody else, but we just need to give them that opportunity and 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 support them, you know, realistically. Don't look at it as a person with a disability. Look at it as a mother with disability and what's the extra support can we give them, you know, to be the best person, the best mother that they can for that child. Mm. So, you know, it's that colonial system of, you know, putting up walls, thinking they cannot do rather than they can do. You know, our people are a resilient mob, you know, we... We, you know, we're still standing after all these years, you know, no matter what's been thrown at us. But, you know, this it's a crisis now happening that, you know, how long can we go on and, and remove children away from culture, away from family, away from country, and not expect implications from that in, you know, generational mm. trauma and other, other things that are happening in this country. So, you know, the whole system does need a shake up and, and come from that person point of view. Absolutely. The system needs a the system needs a massive, massive shake up because yeah, like everything that you've said this morning um just rings so so true with that yeah, white supremacist family nuclear model where child protection has this idea of how a family should um like look what it should look like and how a family should interact with each other and how yeah, a family um, should be in a community. And absolutely, we all need to do the work to like undo all of those ableist um, and racist um, ideas about, like, yeah, <laughs> about how we like, raise children. Um, and so I can give you an example. So I, I work, oh, you know, in. Unfortunately, June, um, we'd love to have you back on the show next week, but we're just about okay. to wrap up. Um, but yeah. yeah It'd be really good to have you on a show um, later on, so that we can talk a bit more about some other issues, especially like NDIS and exactly. <laughs> child protection. And once the hearings have wrapped up as well, we would love to speak with you again. Um, but thank you thank so you. so much for your time, June. Thank you very much. Take care. Um, and that's all we have time for uh, today. Uh, breakfast. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll be back next week with a special program uh, for Disability Day, Uh, but now to Lost in Science.